0: Good morning, church. How'd you like that extra hours? Oh, no, that was last week. (laughs) Just keep turning it back and you'll get the extra hour. There was a man who was stranded alone. He was stranded alone on a deserted island in the Pacific for many years. But one day, there was a boat that came sailing into view, and the man frantically waved, and he got the skipper's attention. The boat landed on the beach, and the skipper got out to greet the stranded man. And while the rescuing sailor was there, he looked and he noticed that there were three huts sitting there on the the sand. And so he asked the the castaway, this guy who was alone on the island, what is with those three huts that you've built? And the stranded man replied, well, that first hut over there, that's my house. Okay, okay. Well, what's the second hut for? Asked the sailor. Well, that's my church that I attend each Sunday. Oh, okay. I I get it. Then what's the third hut that's over there? And the castaway answers solemnly, Oh, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) He's on an island by himself. And he can't even get along with himself. Someone said it this way. If you want to have the kind of church like the kind of church you like... You needn't put your clothes in a bag and start a long, long hike. You only find what you left behind, for there's nothing really new. It's a knock at yourself when you knock your church, because it ain't the church, it's you. Now, in the case of that ridiculous illustration, really, of the stranded man on the island by himself, it should have been obvious as to where lies the problem. But you know, people leaving one church to go to another is not always a laughing matter. Sadly, some leave to never return. Fussing and fighting is nothing new. It appears that the Christian community in James's day was fraught with internal problems. And so James addresses this relational disharmony in James chapter 4. And so I invite you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 4 for this morning. James is in the back, towards the back of your Bibles. You'll find it there as we continue in our study on faith and action from the book, from the letter of James. Now, the chapter break between uh, three, chapter 3 verse 18 and chapter 4 verse 1 is unfortunate. Remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original scriptures. Chapters and verses were added later for convenience. And so I believe that verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4 is really a continuation of what James was just talking about in verses three through eight, 13 through 18 in chapter 3. And what was he just talking about? Well, you recall from last week that James uh, spoke of, of two kinds of wisdom. That there are those who are wise, and there are the otherwise. The wise and the otherwise. And well, how do you spot the difference? Well, as we saw last week, really the bottom line for last week was that true wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces. True wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces. You can read verse, reread verses 13 through 18 sometime this week. See, wisdom from above will be seen in how we relate to others and will be marked by deeds done in humility. On the other hand, the selfish ambition and bitter envy and jealousy and the resulting chaos and division that it all causes is not of God. You can say you're wise all you want, but if that is what's coming out, you are not wise, you are otherwise. And what is this otherwise, this world's wisdom led to in the church? James 4, 1 through 6 answers that. It's really an illustration of what happens when we live according to the wisdom of the world, when we, when we act like the unbelieving world's. All right, here's the takeaway for this morning. I'd like to give this to you up front when I can. Here's the bottom line from verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. It's conflicts among us are the result of the conflicts within us. Conflicts among us are the result of the conflicts within us. And so, I want to look at conflicted passions and then divided affections. And really, by the end of our time, James is going to provide us some words of hope as we'll look at unmerited attraction. And that forms, from, that forms my outline for this morning. So, first of all, uh, conflicted passions. Conflicted passions, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And before I read ver- those three verses of chapter 4, I really want to go back. To the last verse of chapter 3. It really sets up a context for this morning. Verse 18, chapter 3, says Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now it's that closing verse that makes the opening verses of chapter 4 quite striking. Because after this beautiful, beautiful verse about peacemaking, James goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 4, follow along, verse 1 of James chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And I ask the question, where are the peacemakers? He says, don't they come from your desires of battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. And I read that and go, wow, they must have had quite the business meetings. <laughs> they're fighting. They're quarreling. Doing more fighting and quarreling to the point of killing each other. Now, I don't know how literal to take that, but some suggest that there was some violence going on in the Christian community. Thank God I haven't seen that happen. But, but if we take a step back from it, we see that Jesus said, What? If we hate our brother, it is as if we committed murder. And, and, and so um, sometimes um, just our looks can kill, right? or words that are death words. We, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And stories of fights and quarrels are all too common that the caricature of a feuding church is found everywhere people poke fun of it all the time and they have some threads of truth in it. As this young father learned from his children, he, he, was, he was in the kitchen and outside, he was hearing a commotion in his backyard. And, and so he looked outside and, and he saw his daughter and several playmates in a heated quarrel. They weren't getting along at all. And so he intervened, he opened the window, and he asked, what's going on out there? Why all the fighting? And his daughter replied, Dad, we're just playing church. <laughs> now I don't know how to laugh or cry at that. Because it's a tragic note that's firmly rooted in many Christian communities. I recall someone comparing the church to Noah's Ark He said, the church is like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm on the outside, we couldn't stand the stench on the inside. (laughs) And you know, fighting and quarreling reeks. Yes, to, to high heaven, to the nostrils of God. Fights and quarrels are the results of earthly wisdom. Life is very short, and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friends, as John Lennon put it. He goes on, I have always thought that it's a crime. So I'll ask you once again, try to see it my way. Only time will tell if I am right or I am wrong. While you see it your way, there's a chance that we might fall apart before too long. We can work it out. We can work it out. And yet, sadly, all too often, brothers and sisters in Christ aren't working it out. John Lennon, the Beatles, was no biblical scholar, but how true it is that we can spend the short time we have fussing and fighting. And there, there are many moving stories, I suppose you've heard them too, of those who, who in a time of crisis, in the final moments of life, like, like, the, like 9-11 or some school shooting, that a phone call's made or a voicemail left that, that says something like this, "I love you. I don't know if I'll ever see you again, but I love you, and I want you to know that I love you." Peggy Noonan, who wrote, reflecting back on the tragedy of 9/11, said this: "When life is reduced to its essentials and time is short, people said what counted, what really mattered. Now before I dig into these verses some more I, I want to pause right here and ask you this question I ask myself if you knew if you knew that you only had a few more hours to live what call would you need to make right now and what's stopping you from making that call I mean, it could be a family member. It could be someone who used to go to this church. It could be someone in this room that you need to speak to. Life, church, life is very short. There's no time for fussing and fighting, my friends. A faith in action deals with unfinished business. And Pastor James provides some answers on who's to blame for conflicts and relationships and what we can do about it. James asks the question right out of the gates, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And he doesn't leave us hanging as to the answer to that question. What's the real reason for their fussing and fighting? Why were they having problems getting along? James answers a question with a question. So he says, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? His answer, follow along now. Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from Satan who's attacking the church? It doesn't say that. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from disagreements on some doctrinal issues? It doesn't say that. What causes fights and quarrels among you, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Conflicts among us are the result of the conflicts within us. Now the word desires there, it's really a neutral word, but it's where we get our word hedonism, which is the belief that pleasure is the ultimate goal in life. But pleasure in itself is not wrong. God said, uh, is said to have richly provided us with everything for our enjoyment. Check it out, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think it's verse 10, somewhere around there. See, the issue is not enjoyment of his provisions. The problem is when we're being ruled by those desires, it's when we expect those pleasures to truly satisfy the inner cravings that is meant for Christ to fill. We can't blame Satan when we can't get along. That isn't to say he won't pounce on the opportunity. But we are primarily the ones to blame. The problems lie, lies within. The great preacher of many years ago, Henry Ward Beecher, he had this clock in his church that just didn't keep good time. The, the hands on the clock, it was always showing you that it's too slow, too fast. And month after month, uh, Beecher fiddled with it, trying to rectify the problem. And soon, it became a standard topic of conversation in the church. Until finally, in desperation, he put this sign over the clock that said, Don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. (laughs) And I go, that's true of conflicts. The outward manifestation of fights and quarrels is symptomatic, Of the conflicting passions within. Don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. And until you deal with the deeper trouble in the spiritual realm. There's going to be no way to set the hands aright permanently. So here's a principle. And there's a lot of principles here. And you can can pull them out yourself here. But here's a principle for um, um, what to do when it comes to conflict. Here's here's number one. It's not not profound. but, But the principle is this. The starting place for resolving conflict is quit blaming others. Look at yourself. You have little to no hope of ever moving toward a healthy resolution by keeping focused on the other's fault. You need to ask yourself the question, what is my contribution to the problem? And James, notice here, he won't allow us to minimize our fight say, you know, we're, we just aren't wired the same. Our personalities clash. We're we're just going through a hard time right now. It's complicated. James insists, right? We examine our fussing and fighting more closely. The animosity, it comes from inside. It's not just this personality clash. It comes from that bitter envy and selfish ambition that competes with others' envy and selfish ambition. That's really the nature of conflict. We have kind of this going on. It's when, it's when something or someone gets in the way of fulfilling my desire, I will fight to get my own way. Apply it to some conflict that you went through this week on the way to church. No, it doesn't happen on the way to church, does it? Maybe on the way to church this morning. Apply it to that. I didn't get my way. I will fight to get my way. Several years ago, there was a book entitled How to Argue and Win Every Time. Somebody's going, I'm writing that one down. No, I really have no interest in reading it, but apparently many others did read it because it was on the national bestseller list. According to the author, uh, we're born to win arguments, and the problem is, is that we've kind of been stifled, we've kind of been locked up by parents and, and preachers and teachers and others in authority. And a quote from the book says this. He says, when we give ourselves permission to argue, we become like born-again gladiators. Wow. That kind of advice is fuel for our flesh. The selfishness within, that feeds it. That's exactly, my rights, read this. Yes, I can do this. No, no, looking to win is the very thing that keeps the conflict going, right? Now, I need to say this. The problem isn't the conflict itself, but what the conflict leads to if you don't address the issues within. Because where there are people, there'll be conflict. It's inevitable. That's not the enemy. James is not addressing disagreements. Nor is he saying there would never be conflicts between people or in the church. No, no. Get this. The mark of unity... Is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of a reconciling spirit. Let me say that again. The mark of unity is not the absence of conflicts, but the presence of a reconciling spirit. So I ask, are you open? Am I open to reconciliation? Are you willing to own your part in the problem and stop fighting until you get your own way? Because when you want something so badly but don't get it, it can lead to violence. I mean, we may not actually uh, murder someone in that moment of frustration, but we can tear someone to shreds with our mouths. Or we can say, well, I'll get you back. I'm going to do the whole silent thing to you. I'm going to withdraw privileges from you. I'll show you. or Which is all part of uh, passive aggressive behavior. If you're not sure what that is, uh, Google it. But see, there can be this internal loathing. That we have towards someone. Under the surface. We may secretly kind of coveting. What someone else's possesses. We go no oh, if I just had what that person had. I'd be satisfied. You sure about that? Well James forces the issue. He turns our thoughts to the only one. Who truly can satisfy. And that's God himself. We're moving at quite a clip here. Here's the middle of verse 2. Too. You're not happy because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So the answer to these passions within is not to shut down or try to beat them down so they don't exist, but, but, but that those desires are awakened to God and what God wants to give us. See, James addresses here the poverty of our prayer life. See, the problem of prayerlessness from this, this verse right here is that we kind of treat God as this genie that we just rub the, you know, so we kind of rub the, the, the lamp a little bit and he'll give, me, give us whatever we want. And when he doesn't, we walk away in a huff, disappointed with God. James points out we're approaching God all wrong. We are settling for an American version of Christianity. And we're chasing the things of this world first and then expecting that God come through for us rather than seeking God first. See, a conflict with others, it's really a spiritual issue. He's going to flesh that out some more and what we're going to look at next. See, see, there's, there's something not right with God that must be addressed, that we're not immersing ourselves in him. A problem with others is a barometer, a barometer of our relationship with God. And that's what James takes on next. He moves from the problem of conflicted passions to address the problem of divided affections. All right, look with me at verse 4. James says, you adulterous people. <laughs> you know, can you imagine if I began this sermon by calling you adulterous people? <laughs> Something's under his skin. Name calling, really? It's, this is uncomfortable language. This harsh An abrupt address by James stands in contrast to the many times that James addresses his readers in this letter, my brethren or my brothers and sisters, very warmly, very affectionate. He does it six times up until now. Now he calls them adulteresses, which is literally what it is. It's in the feminine. And the Jewish believers to whom James is, is writing, would have immediately understood the use of this word adulteress. James is borrowing Old Testament language of a covenant bound by marriage. God's depicted as a, as, a, as a husband to the nation Israel. You can research it, but in Isaiah 54, for example, he says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. And so God spoke often in the Old Testament references to the covenant people of Israel that they had committed spiritual adultery. It's the language here of marriage, of people who cheated on their faithful God. And James applies that to those who should be enjoying intimacy with God, but instead of running around on God, the God of the universe, by chasing the pleasures of this world. Now, incidentally, though it's really not, the, the word "adulteresses," it only applies to believers. It applies to those who are in a covenant relationship with Christ. An unbeliever is not called an adulteress. Only a believer is. So what is he saying by this? Pretty straightforward. James is charging them with cheating on God. How are they cheating on God? He goes on to say, rest of verse 4, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now James doesn't say friendship with people in the world is hatred toward God. It's friendship with the cosmos. It's, it's chasing after the things of this world that unbelievers chase. Very, very strong language here. And it's convicting to the core of the contemporary church, especially the church in our country. In the evangelical church today, broadly speaking, it can be sometimes difficult to see the difference between those who profess the name of Christ and those who do not. Church, this should not be. So we have to ask ourselves, bring it home, is my thinking, is my, are my beliefs more in line with the world or with God's? I mean, what best describes you right now, a friend of the world or a friend of God? You say, well, I'm kind of, no, there's no, there's no third option here, friend of the world, friend of God, which? Are you are you today better friends with the world than you were 5 years ago or or a year ago Kierkegaard the, the dangerous dangerous the da- Danish philosophy I don't know I don't think he was dangerous the Danish philosopher he told a story about a goose who was wounded who landed in a barnyard with some chickens And so this goose, he played with the chickens. He hung out with the chickens. He ate with the chickens. And after a while, that goose thought he was a chicken. One day, a flight of geese came over, migrating to their home. They gave a honk up there in the sky. And he heard it. And Kierkegaard says this. He says, something stirred within the breast of this goose. Something called him to the skies. And he began to flap the wings he hadn't used. And he rose a few feet into the air. Then he stopped. And he settled back into the mud of the barnyard. He heard the cry, but he settled for less. Are you settling for less than what God wants for you, believer? Imagine, imagine a bride saying to the groom on their wedding day, what's the minimal amount of fidelity and commitment I have to give you to remain married? You'd be horrified, and you should be. You should walk away. Yet we say, I will receive Jesus as my Savior, but what's the minimal amount of fidelity and commitment to remain in relationship with you? What is it? Because that's where I want to be. And you see, God is all in with his commitment to us. All in. He longs for our complete affections. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. And whatever translation you have, there's going to be different words than this one. We'll, we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit. But do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now, just so you know, verse 5 is viewed as one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to translate. The NIV, I think, misses it. The footnotes a little bit better, but still kind of still misses it. Why is it so difficult? Because you have the words envies intensely, or some translations, translations, jealousy desired. That can be taken the positive, it could be taken the negative. That's problem number one. The spirit, the word spirit there, could, could refer to our human spirit, little s, or the big S, the Holy Spirit. And the spirit, third problem, could be viewed as the object or the subject of the phrase it's used in. How are we doing? I don't know what he's saying. And to make matters even more interesting, it's not done yet. There's, an old, there's no Old Testament scripture that says exactly what this verse says. He says, do you think Scripture says without reason? And then he quotes this, and there's no Scripture we can point to that says that. Well, thanks, James. Now, it's above my pay grade (laughs) to figure this out on my own. So I look to others who are smarter than me for some insight. It's a long list, by the way. You don't have to say amen to that, but but it's a long list. (laughs) There are many options. I'm going to give you two. I'm not going to bore you with all the options. Two options. I think it boils down to this. One option is to understand this as referring to God's jealousy for his people. Or two, it's referring to the human tendency we have within to be envious. I will go with door number one. Likely. James here is mention of Scripture is not so much a specific passage in the Bible, but that there's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, New Testament as well, but the theme that runs through the Old Testament is God's jealousy. He is a jealous God. He has no rival. He has no equal. God won't share his allegiance with another. You can look up Exodus 34, 14 for that. You can look at Zechariah 8. You can read the book of Hosea. God jealously longs. That's what I think it's saying. God jealously longs for the spirit, small s, the human spirit. He longs for the human spirit that he made to live in us. In other words, he longs for you. He longs for us. He longs for our affections. Now, there might be some confusion around the jealousy of God. Because in Scripture, when the Bible speaks of human jealousy, most of the time it is sin. I mean, there's a place for godly jealousy. Paul, in one case, expresses that. So, how do we know if it's wrongful jealousy or godlike jealousy? Well, wrongful jealousy is selfish, it's about our insecurities, it can turn to a very unhealthy obsession. God's jealousy is angered love, but stays love. And in ancient times, there were were lots and lots of gods. And God comes along, Yahweh God comes along. Creator God comes along. He says, don't treat me like you treat all your other gods. God's. I don't want to just be up on the God shelf of all your other gods. No, 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 no. God says, I want your exclusive devotion. Because relating to God is like relating to God in marriage. It's right, appropriate for a spouse to say, I must have first place in your life. I'm not talking about where God is in that. No, on a human level, I must have first place in your life. Your loyalty has to be to me. In other words, just as a husband, as, as I am a husband, I'm jealous for the affections of my wife. And anybody who attempts to steal the affections of my wife from me will be met with the greatest opposition. Am I making myself perfectly clear? (laughs) Right? Right? Don't mess with it. And while some jealousy can then go over the top, this jealousy I have for my wife's affection is appropriate. In a much greater way, the God of the universe is jealous for your affections and anyone or anything that attempts to steal that will be met with divine force. Do we have divided affections? Oswald Chambers put it this way, beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus. What is that? Now against this backdrop, we're gonna see the unmerited uh, attraction. Unmerited attraction, my third point this morning, because here's the beautiful part of this. The God who is jealous for your affections is committed to pouring out his grace upon you. This is marvelous. Look at verse 6. But he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. God is an attraction to us based solely on who he is. It's unmerited. I want to see the magnitude, the enormity of God's grace here. It's grace upon grace. He gives a greater grace, greater Grace, grace is greater than our, than our sin and any circumstance we're going through right now. As one hymn writer put it, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth, and giveth again. There was an artist who once submitted a painting of Niagara Falls for some exhibition, but, but this painter neglected to give it a title. And so the gallery had this great painting of Niagara Falls and they were faced with a need to supply some title for it and they came up with these words, three words, more to follow, more to follow. See, old Niagara Falls spilling over billions of gallons of water per year for thousands of years has more than met the needs of those below and it's a fit emblem of the flood of God's grace. There's always more to follow. You see the Niagara Falls, and you go more to follow. It's still coming. That's God's grace. So to the one who has fallen, more grace. To the one whose heart is wounded this morning, more grace. To the one who knows it's time to change, he gives more grace. To the one whose life has been shattered by a divorce, more grace. To the one who needs to let go of that bitterness and unforgiveness, more grace. To deal with the ashes of failure, or or that most recent diagnosis, or to deal with some family members this Thanksgiving, (laughs) he gives more grace. Yeah, amen. It's been said this way, for daily need, there's daily grace. For sudden need, there's sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there's overwhelming grace. There's more to follow. It never runs out. And I am helpless without the grace of God. And so are you. How do we receive this grace? One condition. End of verse 6 says it plainly. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble he opposes the proud If you're sticking you you know your heels down and you go no I'm not moving you're not going to get his grace it's his grace for the asking will you come humbly to the Lord asking for his grace what's the cure for fights and quarrels humility what's the way back from our spiritual infidelity humility and since God favors the humble, the only valid response is to bow before God and all humility. Do you need to come to the Lord right now in humility? You need to stop digging in and come to the Lord in humility instead of continuing in stubbornness and keeping the fight going. Humble yourself. Brian, humble yourself. Instead of imploding in your self-centeredness, Humble yourself. Conflicts among us are the result of the conflicts within. And all the fussing and fighting comes down to this. We're building our lives on other things than God. It's a spiritual issue. Tim Keller, in an article on idolatry, gave this definition of sin. He said, sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. And whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. What's competing with your loyalty to Jesus Christ? He might just want to remove that. And it will be painful when he does rather than we come to him humbly. Aaron Smith, he was tired of the typical online dating scene. And unlike most people with that same sense of dissatisfaction, he took a very unique course of action. Aaron Smith reached out to software engineering friend, Scott McDowell, who helped to develop a new dating app entitled Singularity. Its tagline, online dating simplified." Aaron Smith said, the biggest problem with other dating apps is that my face isn't featured prominently. So he went on to explain the app's killer feature, the lack of other male competition. He's the only one on the app. (laughs) Women don't have to spend countless hours on an endless number of choices because no matter how much they swipe, they'll only see photos of him. (laughs) The only guy available is him. You can check it out. He's not married yet. wonder why. (laughs) This is what I think of, though. God wants to remove all other distractions that get in the way of our seeing Him. He ought to be the only face. God isn't, secure, isn't insecure, but He is jealous for our devotion. And when our lives are centered on Him, there will be less fussing and fighting and more joy and harmony in our relationship with others. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that James says it straight, it doesn't mess around, doesn't sugarcoat it, and doesn't deliver a soft serve here. We might choke on some of the words here, but I pray God at the end of the day, we'll stop and think what it means to be devoted to you, to have our affections on you, and that all the human relationships that we struggle with just might be an indicator that there's something wrong in our relationship with you. And the beautiful thing is that 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 final verse in that section, you give us more grace we're going to sing about that grace, that, that uh, you have the power to redeem. Redeem any messy situation, any situation in our lives that we've got off track. You have the power to redeem that because of your grace. May we walk in that grace this morning and this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.